You know, the perennial questions of any thinking person are, why is life so difficult? What's the point of it all? What's the point of suffering? Did anybody ask me? Deep questions. This was the topic that I was asked to speak about as I got off the plane in London, England recently. And uh, here's my talk. Give it a listen. Tell me what you think. I, I, I just came from the airport. So... It's my first stop. I haven't been in England since uh, pre-COVID. This is my first time here in a few years. So it's, it's nice to be back. Oh, okay. I'm literally just getting off the plane. To say, you know, I don't have, comp I don't really completely have my bearings yet. Um, but we're going to talk about know yourself inside and out, right? That was the idea? Yeah? That's the expectation? Okay. So let's talk about that. Um, yeah. You know, the old Kotzka uh, Revolt about knowing yourself, about self-knowledge. The Kotzka said, "As ich bin ich, weil du bist du, und du bist du, weil ich bin ich, ich bin nicht ich, und du bist nicht du. Aber, as ich bin ich, weil ich bin ich, und du bist du, weil du bist du, ich bin ich, und du bist du. What does that mean? If I am I because you are you, and you are you because I am I, I am not I, you are not you. But if I am I because I am I, you are you because you are you, I am I and you are you. What does that mean? It means, to put it simple, that if I look to another human being, if I look to a relationship with a person to give me a sense of identity then I'm looking in the wrong place and I'm never going to find it and the one thing I'm desperately asking somebody to give me which is a sense of self-worth they can't give to me they don't have it to give to me only my maker can give me permission to exist and as long as I'm trying to get it from somebody else, I'm always going to be disappointed. And because I'm disappointed, it's very easy to get uh, addicted to, to looking for it more and more and more. Oh, maybe you didn't know, but maybe the next guy, maybe the next one, the next one. And just becomes this lifelong quest. Maybe finally somebody's approval will make my life worth living. Obviously, that's not a it's not a healthy way to live. So the first thing that we need to know is that our existence is pre-validated. That I belong here. How do I know I belong here? Because Hashem put me here, right here, at this moment. <laughs> And I don't need another person to agree with that. 
in order to make, to make it okay. I know we're not talking about marriage, but I'll uh, mention to you, we'll throw in some free Shalom bias over here. Why not? could always use help in that area. Somebody once observed, and I thought it was, uh, it was very accurate, that almost every dysfunctional situation that a, that a married couple can, can have is either caused or at the very least exacerbated by one or maybe even both parties looking to get from a human being, meaning the other spouse, that which only Hashem can give you. And think about how much trouble that could cause if you're trying to get from another human being that which only Hashem can give you. So a broken person, an incomplete person, a person who's unsure of their own worth, gets involved in a relationship in the hopes that this relationship will finally give me a sense of, of worthiness. And it, it never works out well. Okay, so how do we understand this, this concept? This is my coffee. This is, this is very important for the success of this talk. It's f what time is it? 5 a.m. right now? In New York? Okay, when I left JFK, it was Matzah Shabbos. And it's, in my mind, it's still not Sunday morning yet. So. Okay, so I could say this is a very, like, general pep talk. You're worthy. You matter. You don't need other people's approval. But I suppose you would appreciate it if I would, I would back that up and explain it with something that you could sink your teeth into, something with substance, right? That's what you wanted, right? Okay, all right. Okay, so let's go deep. Um, let's go really deep. Let's just go, let's, let's skip the half an hour of warming up the crowd. Let's just go to the deep stuff. Um, the soul comes down to the world, and uh, it's plunged into a body, and the body has this drive, this survival mechanism that we sometimes refer to as the nefesh abamis, the animal soul, which only understands material things, physical things. And the soul is this transcendent spiritual being that just wants oneness and connection with, with infinity. And it's obviously a very uncomfortable situation to put this this uh, godly entity called the, the soul into a, into a body that is really inundated with uh, sensorial 
stimuli that sort of trigger that animalistic uh, impulse and and uh, the, the 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 soul is is, is uncomfortable to, to state it mildly and um, it's it's really it's sometimes it's described as a war so it's described as a war the soul is fighting a war and it's 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 fighting a war behind enemy lines because the soul doesn't come from here it comes from up there it's a heavenly being and it's dropped parachuted down into this earthly realm and then it's like deposited within the body so it's like sort of surrounded on all sides and its voice is muted and its senses are muted like all of its sensitivities are covered up by all the the bombardment of of physical stuff it's 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 not easy so it's often it's called a war and in fact in uh in Torah there's a the parsha kiseitze lemelchama and uh, the Alter Rebbe, the Balatanya, in Lakute Torah, explains that that's describing the soul's journey to the body. When you go out to war, what does it mean you go out to war? When you, the soul, leaves heaven, that's going out, it's to war, it's a, it's a war, it's a, it's a battle. What's interesting is that if you look in that verse, Rashi says, that this verse that says when you go out to war, at least the, the simple meaning of the verse is referring to an optional war. You know that they had two different kinds of wars. They had Milchemes an optional war, and then there's a Milchemes Mitzvah, an obligatory war. You know an example of Milchemes Mitzvah? Hmm? Amalek, excellent, very good example, right? That's an obligatory war. Or against the, the Canaanite nations, that's obligatory. And then there's other wars that were at the discretion of the, the king and the Sanhedrin, so those are optional wars. So... The simple meaning of the verse is it's talking about an optional war. And that's apparent from the context. I won't get into the whole discussion there about that Parsha, because that's not really my point here. But it, it's obvious from the context that it's an optional war and not an obligatory war. But the question <coughs> that's asked is... The Balatanya says that this verse is referring to... At least on the on the, the spiritual level, it's referring to the descent of the soul into the body down here on the physical plane. Uh, how does that stim? How does that uh, align itself with the fact that in the original context, the literal meaning of that verse is it's an optional war. In other words, I was given a choice. If Kiseitel Mechama means when your soul leaves heaven to go fight the battle down here in the physical body, 
how can you say that that's the source or that's a description of that condition when the literal meaning is something that's optional and as far as I'm aware, I was not given any say in the matter of whether or not my soul would be embodied. You hear what I'm saying? So, uh, good question, right? Good question? Okay. So, you know, before Hashem created the world, we're told that um, He spoke with his consultants. You aware of this? Yeah. Bemi Nimloch. With whom did Hashem consult? Who did Hashem consult with before he created the world? Nimloch. He consulted the souls of the righteous. Now that shouldn't surprise you so much that there are souls of the righteous to consult before creation because we know that Bereshis, the first word of Torah, Rashi tells us is base Bereshis, that the world was created for the sake of two things which existed before creation. Anyone remember? Two things that existed before creation? It's the first Rashi and Chumash. What? Taira and Yisro. Very good. So before creation, <coughs> Taira existed, and Yisro, the Jewish people, existed. Not the Jewish people as people in bodies, obviously, because bodies didn't exist, because the physical plane did not exist. None of the worlds existed, not even the spiritual worlds. But in their ultimate source, the souls of the Jewish people existed, and the Torah also existed as a, as a spiritual entity. And then Hashem created the world. As a, as a forum within which these two things could be actualized. The, the Jewish souls could come down to the world and live according to Torah as souls in bodies. But the, the souls of the Jewish people and the Torah existed before the world was created. So with whom did Hashem consult? He consulted with the souls. Minishmeisem shel tzaddikim. As the Navi says, all of the Jewish people are called tzaddikim, especially up there. <laughs> up there in our source, we're all still pristine and pure. So to answer the question, how can we say that our embodiment was something that we consented to? Well, I'll tell you even more. Not only did you consent to your embodiment, but you consented to the entire concept of the physical world being created. 
Now, I know we don't necessarily remember that being in that state. Um, that kind of stuff gets erased from our consciousness. Even stuff from previous lifetimes, from previous embodiments, we don't remember. There's this Nohar Dinor, this river of fire that cleanses, that wipes the hard drive. So we don't even remember previous embodiments, although the psychic will tell you, you know, she'll, oh, you were so-and-so in a previous lifetime, right? How do they, how do they always know, like, that you were always somebody famous? It was like, never heard a guy went and found out who he was in a previous lifetime. And you should say it was somebody like a regular guy. It was always like Napoleon or something. So we don't even remember our previous lifetimes, let alone what it was like before embodiment existed at all. But when I speak to you and I say like, who are you? Who's the real you? Like if you go really deep, who's the real you? Obviously, you know, I'm not just talking about the container, the physical container that you're inhabiting. Obviously, you know, I'm not just talking about your body. That's not the real you. That's not the essential you. You know that you existed before your embodiment. You know that you'll exist after your embodiment. So you, you're already comfortable with this idea. I'm assuming a crowd like this, you're, you're comfortable with the idea of having an identity that, that transcends your physical circumstances in this lifetime. So what I'm saying is if we really want to go deep and think about who are we, well, we are... We are the cause for everything that we see. We are not part of the effect. We are part of the cause. We consented to the entire concept of creation. That's our true identity. We are not victims of some plan that uh, we had no say in. We are partners with Hashem in this project called creation. Is this too deep? It's not too deep? Okay, good. So, if it's not too deep, then let's talk about, let's bring it back down. <laughs> I'll give you whiplash, just when we're going high, we'll, we'll go low. So let's bring it back down. What are, what are the practical impl implications of an idea like this? You know, if we really, if we really accept this concept, well, first of all, it means that we're never truly powerless 
were not victims of circumstance. There's a story about when uh, the late Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, although Shalom, was a college student. And he basically figured out a clever way to get a free trip to America. He said he was going to interview Jewish leaders in America. So he got a grant to go to take a trip uh, across the United States and interview different Jewish leaders. He said when he got to the Lubavitcher Rebbe in uh, Crown Heights, he said the Rebbe flipped it on him. And instead of allowing himself to be interviewed, the Rebbe started interviewing the young Jonathan Sachs, who at that time was a student at uh, Cambridge. So uh, the Rebbe asks the young Jonathan Sachs, what are you doing for the Jewish students on campus at Cambridge? And Jonathan Sachs was not prepared for this. He wasn't prepared to be questioned at all. He was prepared to ask questions, not to answer them. And specifically, he wasn't prepared to answer questions of accountability about his Avedis Haklal, about his public service. In fact, he didn't even, he did not even perceive himself as a public servant. He was just a college kid, just a student. Um, so the, the whole question, the whole line of questioning really took him aback. So he said, I started doing something very English and I started constructing a very convoluted sentence <laughs> that would, you know, be sufficiently long-winded enough to say nothing while using a lot of words and basically excuse myself. So he said, I, I started to say, well, in the situation in which I currently find myself, and uh, he said at that moment the Rebbe did something which he believes was quite uncharacteristic for the Rebbe. He, the Rebbe interrupted him. He cut him off mid-sentence and said, one does not find oneself in a situation. One creates one's situation. There, there, there are two ways of looking at any, any situation we find ourselves in. One perspective is the immediate uh, short-sighted view of it. But then the other come out, so to speak, and you take the eternal look at it and you say, hold on a second. Um, I existed and I exist even now in a manner that completely transcends whatever it is that's happening right now. And somehow <clears throat> my transcendent eternal soul is needed in this situation right now for some type of improvement, for some type of tikkun that will make the physical world a holier place, furthering 
Hashem and my agenda. I mean, I'm, and I'm decidedly, I'm decidedly calling it Hashem's as well as our agenda, because again, we agreed to it. Hashem said, should we create a physical plane and then endeavor to make that physical world holier than heaven? And we said, let's go for it. So somehow, my transcendent, eternal, truest identity, my soul, the real me, had to come down and be in this situation which I presently find myself for some type of rectification that will bring at least this little corner of this world a little bit closer to the state of perfection where ultimately the physical world will be holier than heaven. Where ultimately the greatest revelation of spirituality will, will take place. Meaning the ultimate paradox of the infinite revealed within the finite. Now I'm getting lofty again. Okay. Um, how well do you think we know Hashem when we're in heaven? You know, what do souls do in heaven? You know what they do in heaven? They, it's, it's, is it pleasurable? Yes. What is pleasurable? They enjoy the ray of the divine presence. What does that mean? Souls are consciousness. And they enjoy consciousness. They enjoy understanding. The pleasure of souls in Gan Eden is appreciating the infinite depth of truth. They learn Torah on a spiritual plane, and it's profoundly pleasurable for them. So what do souls do in heaven <clears throat> is they behold the, the splendor and, and the magnificence of the truth of the Torah on increasingly deeper and deeper levels. And that's how they know Hashem. When a soul comes down to the world, it's very hard to achieve that level of spiritual sensitivity and clarity and consciousness. Very hard. Because, again, you have this container on top of the soul, and it distracts you because it's picking up on all these stimuli, and it, it, gets, it gets focused on the wrong thing sometimes because the, that's the, the survival mechanism. It, it, it's, it, 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 it becomes focused on... on petty things that are not really of eternal value, but, you know, that's part of being a, a physical drive. It's just, it, it gets focused on things that feel very important right now, the tyranny of the urgent. Um, and, and so it becomes very hard in the embodied state to transcend all that and to remember what's really of enduring value, of eternal value. <coughs> 
So it's very hard for souls in bodies down here to know Hashem in the way that souls in heaven know Hashem. Like in heaven, all that, all the all the the filters and the covering and the 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 blockage is is removed, and there's this. Imagine like just just this transparent window opens up, and the soul is able to 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 have profound understanding of of truth, and it's it's very very uh, fulfilling. Down here is an alma de shikra. It's a world of falsehood, and it's a struggle to even glimpse one little piece of truth. And yet, and yet, there's an advantage of being down here in this world. What's the advantage? The Vilna Gon was near his end. He was about to pass away. And his Talmidim were standing around him. And he was crying. And he was saying... I'm about to leave a world where for a few kopecks you can buy one of these. And he reached and he grabbed his talus cotton. And I'm going to a world where for all of the treasures of that world you cannot procure one mitzvah. Yeah. You know the the, 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 the the understanding of godliness that the souls have in in paradise is commensurate to the Torah that they learned while they were in the world. Everything up there is Chazara. It's all review. So you're talking about the Vilnagon who <laughs> learned the entire Torah. He had a lot to review up there. He was headed toward a pretty pleasurable situation. And he was crying, I'm leaving a place... Or for here, down here, I can, for a few kopecks, I can buy one of these, buy, buy a talus cotton, and I'm going to a place where you can't do one mitzvah anymore. Yeah, but <laughs> forget about the mitzvahs. You're going to absolute bliss. You're going to be able to finally have, you know, to whatever extent such a holy person had blockage because of because of the physical body that's all going to be removed and he's just going to have completely straight access into the depths of the truth that he had that he had spent his life studying so why, why is he crying about losing the opportunity to wear a talus cotton so you know the difference between subjectivity and objectivity Subjectivity is your personal perspective. Objectivity is the truth, whether you know it or not. Objectivity means it does not matter, does not depend on your, you know, the the famous philosophical question, if a tree falls in the forest and there's no one there to hear it, does it make a sound? 
And they say, if a man says something in a forest, his wife isn't there to disagree with him. Is he still wrong? <laughs> That's the more humorous version of it. I don't know if it's humorous or not. Um, objectivity is something that is what it is, because that's what it is. And whether you understand it or not, that's what it is. So your embodied soul <clears throat> does a mitzvah. And in that embodied condition, it's very hard for it to appreciate what it's really accomplishing. In fact, sometimes it could even be you don't feel like you're accomplishing anything. Because that's part of what embodiment does to us. It, it numbs our spiritual sensitivity. So from a subjective point of view, it's not that impressive. We're not really seeing anything. We're not seeing fireworks, to say the least. But the objective reality is something's happening. A soul down here in this world is doing a mitzvah and the will of the infinite is being expressed in the finite, which is an incredible <clears throat> paradox and an incredible, uh, incredible accomplishment to contain the will of the infinite within the finite physical world. In other words, how much value is there to a mitzvah? Infinite value. So one act done by one person at one moment, in one place, <coughs> has infinite value. It's mind-blowing. But what's even more mind-blowing about it is that all of that is true whether you appreciate it or not. So that's what an objective truth is. An objective truth is it is what it is whether you observe it judge it, experience it, are aware of it, or not. So in heaven, a soul's experience is completely subjective. Which is why it feels so good for the soul, because that's the definition of a subjective experience. It's defined by how I experience it, how it makes me feel, how much I appreciate it. And how much does the soul appreciate it up there in heaven? A lot. But it's finite. It's still limited. It's limited to the capacity of the soul to appreciate it. Now, it's a pretty big limit because souls are capable of, of a very... Uh, of a great amount of, 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 of appreciation, of understanding. But at the end of the day, it's still finite, still limited. Which is why there are levels in, in Gan Eden, according to your capacity, according to how much of the truth you're able to handle. And that's why souls graduate. That's what a yard site is. They go to another level. So the soul in heaven has a subjective experience. And it appreciates as much as it can appreciate. As much as it can appreciate. That's the limit. The soul in a body 
may appreciate nothing. You may do a mitzvah and it doesn't even feel like anything's happening. But what's happening is unlimited. Precisely because your ability to appreciate it is irrelevant. So, what's your relationship with Hashem before embodiment? What's your relationship with Hashem during embodiment? Before embodiment, you're able to behold Hashem, to observe, to stand in awe. And it's very moving. That's, that's the soul in heaven, what it sees and what it, what it perceives is, It has a, has a profound effect. So you're able to have a, an, a, 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 yeah, a relationship with Hashem where you observe godliness. You behold godliness. That's in heaven, before embodiment, as well as after. Down here, you're able to be at one with the godliness. Not as an observer, but as a conduit, as a channel. You are actually an extension of Hashem's will. Hashem wills that the mitzvah be done. And you are his arms and his feet to carry out that desire. So it's not two parties, one observing the other. It's actually a total unity where you become an extension of him without separation. So think about the closeness that we had before the world was created and think about the closeness we're able to have once the world is created. In other words, let me reframe the whole scenario. The world doesn't yet exist. Hashem turns to you and says, should we create a world? Okay, so you could look at that and say, why, why would I create a world with this? No, no, no. There's so many problems in the world. It's not a nice place. There's a lot of bad people doing bad things. And for a soul especially, it's a really disturbing situation to be in. <clears throat> No, no, no. I don't know why we would do that. Doesn't sound like a good plan. Or, alternatively, Hashem says, should we create a world? And you say, will it bring us closer? And if you're a soul, that's probably all you're concerned with anyway, right? What do you want? What does a soul want? Just wants to be closer and closer to Hashem. And Hashem says, yes, the closest. And that's the whole reason why I want a world, a physical world. Is so that we can be the closest that we could be. So ironically, I'm going to send you far, quote-unquote, 
It's not a geographical journey. It's not like flying from JFK to Heathrow. It's a, it's a distance in your state of awareness. You're going to shift from a situation where you're able to know Hashem subjectively to a situation where you will lose much of that subjective knowledge of God, but you will objectively be able to gain oneness with Him. You guys follow what I'm saying? Yeah? Now, this is all well and good. I mean, I think up to this point, it seems like people, I'm just scanning the room, it seems like people are in agreement, at least nobody visibly appears to be upset by this idea. But um, let's, let's go a little bit deeper. Because um, when I'm describing the the challenge of embodiment, I, I'm, I'm giving it a pretty tame description. I didn't really fully describe some of the stuff that happens while we're down here. Um, life can be difficult. We can be tested. And um, it can can be rather painful. There's two guys in Helm philosophizing one day. One says, you know, uh, Chaim, when you look at how difficult life is, you think sometimes uh, a person would be luckier never to have been born. So uh, the other guy says, yeah, Maisha, but how many guys do you know who are actually that lucky, like one in a hundred? It's a home joke. How many guys do you know who are that lucky? How many guys do you know who are never born? Right? Chazal tell us, our sages say, Nimnu Vagamru, that the sages debated and they finally came to the conclusion, It's better not to uh, be created. Actually, they don't say better, they say it's easier. Which is totally true. It's much easier not to be created. So let, let's talk about what it's what it's like when when life is difficult um, should we talk about this yeah
So we spoke about the creation of the world. The physical world is really just the the tip of the iceberg. There's a whole extensive system of creation that is behind the physical facade. There are spiritual worlds. And in general, we speak about four uh, spiritual worlds. And if you need to know the names of them, they're called Atsilas, Sabriya, Yitzira, Asiya. And they correspond <clears throat> to the four letters of Hashem's name. The Yud and the He and the Vav and the He. So, uh, I'll explain like this. The higher worlds, the Yud and the He, what does it mean they are higher? It means they're a loftier level of of perception. They are closer to creator than creation. It's a different premise, it's a different axiom for reality than what we're used to in embodiment. In other words, the creator is an empirical reality. Creation is a philosophical construct. Like down here, everybody takes for granted that creation exists. Now you're going to have to prove to me that there's a creator. Up in the loftier world is the exact opposite. The fact there's a creator, that's readily apparent. The fact that there are created beings, wow, that's, that's a weird concept. You're going to have to explain that one to me. So it's a very different way of understanding things. And as things come down, as they devolve, uh, they, they attenuate, they, they adjust to the, the consciousness of those worlds <laughs> until finally it comes down to this physical world. And um, things present themselves in, in a manner that we can relate to, that we can make sense of at least on some level. So, it says in, uh, in Tehillim, Ashrei Agava Shetiyasreno Ka. Fortunate is the one who Hashem chastises, disciplines. And, uh, the name for Hashem that's used there is Ka, how we pronounce it is Ka, but it's Yud and He, the two top letters, the two top letters. So it's explained that when we experience something that's harsh, something that feels like a, uh, a punishment, it's coming from those two letters, meaning it's coming from the loftier source, the loftier worlds. Okay, what does that mean? It means like this. Some things, 
were translated so that we could relate to them as gifts from Hashem. Some things were not translated, so we do not relate to them as gifts from Hashem. And yet, they are also gifts from Hashem. And in fact, from a certain perspective, they are truer gifts than the gifts that were translated for us. You know, imagine a little kid on his fifth birthday. He wants a little toy truck. A little toy truck costs $20 at the store. You can exchange that for pounds. I don't know. Pounds are down right now? Yeah? Still? They're down? Last time I was here, it was like pounds were way up. So twenty. he wants a little toy truck that costs $20. You know what a truck is. A lorry, right? Okay. Talk about translating. <laughs> so, um, so imagine what you do is for his fifth birthday, instead of buying him the $20 truck, you go to the bank and you take out a $20,000 certificate of deposit and uh, you wrap it up in a box about the size of a truck <laughs> and you give it to this little five-year-old on his birthday and he sees the box oh a little toy truck and he opens it up and what's inside the box no truck the little piece of paper but he can't read so he doesn't even know what it says so you tell him and it says it's a it's a cd it's a certificate of deposit and he starts crying you say bubble you could buy a thousand trucks with that the truck costs $20, it's $20,000. And a year from now, when you cash in the CD, you can buy 1,000 trucks. doesn't help. He's, he's wailing, he's crying, he ruined his birthday. I don't know. Did you give him a good present or you didn't give him a good present? Subjectively speaking, it's not a good present. He didn't appreciate it. He really didn't appreciate it. But objectively speaking, it was a much better present. So sometimes Hashem translates his presence for us, and he dumbs it down for us. You know, like sometimes I'll go speak somewhere, and I'll know that I'm not in Golders Green. Am I in Golders Green right now? Because I came straight from the airport, so... Okay, good. All right. Sometimes <clears throat> I'm not in Golders Green, so I can't speak on such a lofty level. You know, especially if I'm in America. You know about Americans. The short attention span. and the, Yeah, okay. So, yeah, I just have to come out and tell some jokes and some stories and don't, don't say anything too deep, right? But around, you know, some, somewhere like Golders Green, I could speak pretty close to the way that I think. I can just talk the way that I think. I don't have to translate so much. But imagine if we took somebody who is coming from a totally different background, different cultural milieu, didn't understand the references, maybe wasn't even sure they believed that my premise had any validity, and you sit them down here, I mean, it would not be so inspiring. 
Maybe it would even be upsetting. Maybe they'd have a very negative experience. Just scanning the room to make sure that nobody here is like, that is my experience right now. This is not what I signed up for. <sighs> didn't tell me they're going to take some guy straight off a plane and have him talk philosophy on a Sunday afternoon. <sighs> but the $20,000 CD is actually a better present than the $20 truck. Problem is the kid can't appreciate it. There are certain things <clears throat> that are coming from a loftier level. They were not translated. And so we don't relate to them as being gifts. But it doesn't make them less gifts. It actually, in a certain way, we can appreciate how they are more gifts than the gifts. Everything's a gift. But these gifts that we relate to as being Painful experiences are actually loftier gifts, which is precisely why we don't enjoy them, because we can't relate to them. And that's why we say, Ashrei Agev the top two letters of the four letters of Hashem's name, because these painful experiences are coming from a loftier place. Now, of course, you might say, <clears throat> well, what do I care if it's coming from a loftier place? It's not what I want. It's like telling somebody, I'm going to take you to a fancy restaurant. And you say, but I don't enjoy fancy restaurants. I just want a hamburger and fries. No, no, no. We're going to go to a fancy restaurant. But that's not what I like. All right. So why do I have to have something that's from a higher level if that's not what I like? So then you have to understand. Well, hold on a second. Do you want an experience that's more pleasant or an experience that's more meaningful? Do I have to choose? <laughs> I don't want to choose. That doesn't sound like a doesn't sound like a good choice to have to make. Okay, well, luckily we don't have to choose. Hashem doesn't torture us and make us actually make that choice. In fact, every morning when we say the morning blessings, we ask Hashem not to give us a Nesoyen, not to give us a difficult situation. So for our part, we say, Hashem, do not give us a difficult situation. So he never tortures us to make us actually ask for a difficult situation. We, we say we don't want one. And then sometimes he says, mm, but I'm going to give you one anyway. And that's what happens. And now that it's in our lives, we have to ask ourselves the question, do we want an experience that's more pleasant or an experience that's more meaningful? It's already here. It's not, it's not like by choosing meaning over pleasantness, I'm causing myself pain. To the contrary, the pain is here. And now I have a decision. Now I have a decision. Don't, don't be scared. You're not, you're not bringing unpleasantness upon yourself. It's already here. The situation is here. I'm in it. And now I'm being asked a question, or I'm asking myself a question. If I can understand every single thing that happens to me as a gift, every single reality that Hashem is creating at every moment is a gift. It sounds corny, but they say every moment is a gift. That's why they call it the present. So any moment that I'm in right now, whatever the situation is, it's all a gift. 
if I readily automatically relate to it as being a positive, pleasing situation, that's certainly a gift. If I relate to it as being unpleasant, it's an even loftier gift. How? How in the world is it a loftier gift? Because it's coming from a higher source, but I told you I'm not so fancy. I don't need the higher source stuff. I'm a simple guy. Okay, so let's explain. What does a higher source mean? It means it's coming from a deeper place within Hashem. Okay, I'm still not convinced why that's worth going through this pain. You know, David HaMelech said, V'ani kirves alakim litoiv. As for me, closeness to Hashem is good. What does that mean? Closeness to Hashem is good. It means that when I'm presented with a situation and you tell me a bunch of stuff about the situation, the thing that I'm most concerned with is how close will it bring me to Hashem. And if you'll tell me this situation is going to be very pleasant but it's not going to particularly deepen your relationship with Hashem. Oh, well, then I'm not that interested. And if you tell me, conversely, this situation is going to be extremely challenging to the point where you may question your ability to deal with it, but it will bring you closer to Hashem. Oh, closer to Hashem? That's what I like. Great. So that's, that's what I want. Again, as I said earlier, the purpose of embodiment, the purpose of Hashem sending your soul down here, was the paradox that by sending you away, He's actually bringing you closer, the closest. The entire purpose of the journey of the soul is to come closer to Hashem. And I explained earlier that when you do a mitzvah, that that's a special type of objective closeness that's greater than any subjective appreciation of Hashem that the soul has in, in heaven. Now I'm adding a, an element to it, and that is there's a certain intimacy with Hashem that can only be gained not only through embodiment, but through the particularly gruesome things that happen from time to time in embodiment. The purpose is not to hurt us. The purpose is not to punish us. The purpose is to bring us closer. And when you're going through it, it doesn't feel like that, and sometimes it even feels like the opposite. And you say, you know, I would have a whole lot more faith if this thing weren't happening to me right now. And it sounds convincing when we say that to ourselves. But the reality is, and anyone can attest to this, who's made it out the other side, that our closeness with Hashem that we gain 
through going through the particularly challenging situations of life is, is, is incomparably greater than what we gain through, through the easy stuff. And we just have to make it through to the other side. Or like Winston Churchill said, you guys know Churchill, right? Yeah. If you're going through hell, keep going. Make it through to the other side. And what awaits you is a profound closeness. Now, we don't go looking for it. We don't ask for it. To the contrary, every morning we beg Hashem, don't do this to us. We say, don't give us an assignment. Because we're not qualified to determine whether we're capable of making it through the Nisayin. Maybe we're going to ask to be tested, and it's a mistake. We're not able to, to make it through the test. But if Hashem has chosen us for a test, and He's deemed us capable, then, then surely we can make it through. And what we gain through going through that difficulty is a closeness that could not have been gained if we would have remained in the safety and the security of heaven. So think about that. Just think about that. Think about everything that your soul agreed to before the world was even created. And think about why your soul was willing to agree to it. Why was your soul willing to agree to be placed in a situation that's so foreign from its, from, from its, its nature? To be plunged into a body, to be limited that way, bombarded with these distractions, potentially tested with all types of difficult situations. Why did your soul say, okay, I think that might be worth it? Only one reason. There's only one thing your soul cares about, and it was that was why your soul agreed to do this. I told you earlier to get closer to Hashem. And if it wouldn't bring us closer, then what's the point? And why would your soul agree to it? The entire purpose was to bring us closer. You know, there's a it's an interesting question in uh, Yerushalmi, which is, why do we create so much stress on Pesach by making matzah? Matzah is the one thing in your house that's probably the biggest risk of chametz. Think about how you clean your house before Pesach. You go through all that work to clean your house from chametz, and then what do you do when you're all done? You bring into the house something that's made from water and flour. And the only thing that's keeping it from being chametz, mamish chametz, is if it was baked in less than 18 minutes. Doesn't that seem crazy? 
So there's a question, you know, Shalmi, why don't we just make matzah out of other ingredients? Like, instead of using flour, you'll use, uh, I mean, it's, a, it's also called flour, but instead of using uh, the grains, what is it, wheat, barley, oat, spelt, rye, instead of using those, well, you'll use something else, like, I mean, I guess now you can't use kidneys. In the times of Yushalmi, you could use kidneys, but, uh, okay, uh, what can we use? Chickpea flour. No, that's kidneys. What? Uh, well, potato flour. Yeah, yeah, okay, potato flour. They didn't have potatoes in times of Yushalmi, by the way. Yeah, you didn't know that? You know where potatoes are from? Potatoes are American, like me. Potatoes were not known in Europe until the 1700s. Yeah, that's true. You guys didn't know that? It's true. Yeah. Potatoes come from the New World. Um, but potato flour, why not potato flour? And you know what uh, Yushalmi says? He says, no, it doesn't work. Because Titus says <clears throat> that you have to be shamer, you have to watch, you have to guard the chametz. Meaning you have to guard it that it shouldn't become chametz. So only that which can become chametz can be matzah. Rather, you have to be shaymer the matzahs in order that they don't become chametz. So if it can't become chametz, it can't be matzah. You get it? If it can't become chametz, it can't become matzah. Think about that. If it can't become chametz, it can't become matzah. That's, that's the meaning of life right there. What's matzah? Matzah is bittel. Selflessness. Complete transparency. That's what matzah is, the flat matzah. It's humble. More than humble. It's totally surrendered to God to the point where it's just a clear conduit to channel the power of God. That's what to be matzah means. It means that my selfhood is no longer an impediment to the glory of Hashem. My selfhood is so surrendered that it, it, it is a reflection and a manifestation of the glory of Hashem. That's what matzah is. Chometz is the opposite. Chometz is puffed up its ego. It's where my selfhood becomes a distraction. It becomes a focus becomes an end unto itself. It takes me away from God consciousness. It separates me. Ego, E-G-O, edging God out. That's comments. If it can't become comments, it can't become matzah. You thought you were close to Hashem before Embodiment? No. No, you weren't. You want to know what closeness is? 
consent to the creation of a world. The word world in Lashem Kodesh is Oilam. It's the root Helem, concealment. A world is a concealment. A world is a concealment because you see creator, you see creation instead of creator. And in that concealment, ironically, paradoxically, is where you actually get to become your true self and where you become united with your true source. So we have to understand that this whole wild ride that we're experiencing, that we call our lives, this is it. This is it. This is the ultimate spiritual experience. This is the ultimate intimacy with Hashem. Intimacy is into me see. To really understand Hashem, to see Hashem, is not as a soul in heaven, as wonderful as that experience is. It's as a soul in a body, who does mitzvahs and therefore acts as a an extension of God's will and who goes through nisyonis and difficulties and tests and challenges and, theref- and thereby proves that Hashem is everywhere, even in the dark places. What is a greater testimony to Hashem's infinity than the fact that we can be in situations that feel ungodly and that even there, we find him. And in fact, we find him there more than in the, the well-lit places. So really, to understand your life <clears throat> is to understand that it's all about <clears throat> your relationship with Hashem. It's all about closeness with Hashem. And that's why, as I started, I said, uh, if you're going to go around asking people to tell you you're okay, and to give you validation and approval so that your existence will have meaning, you're looking in the wrong place. Because people can't grant us that, and they don't need to grant us that. Our existence is inherently meaningful. In fact, our existence is, is as meaningful as Hashem's existence, our true existence. There's, there's been a lot of secrets for a lot of uh, generations, for centuries, for millennia. And as the time goes by, we reveal more and more of those secrets. And uh, those secrets are revealed on a need-to-know basis. 
We don't reveal them for fun. We don't reveal them because we want to have a good speech to say. We don't, we don't even reveal them to inspire people so that they can get excited. We reveal them because we come to a, a juncture. We come to a, a fork in the road where to not reveal these secrets is, is simply not viable anymore. Um, I'm assuming you're aware that in a couple of days is Yudtes Kislev, which is the liberation of the, the Balatanya from imprisonment, and the entire significance of that event is that he was not only on trial by the imperial Russian court, but he was on trial in the heavenly court for revealing the secrets of the Torah. And after 53 days of interrogation, it was <clears throat> determined that he was to be acquitted, and as he was made to understand through his Rebbe and his Rebbe's Rebbe, the Mizritcha Magid and the, the Balshamtev, that when he was acquitted in the earthly court, <clears throat> it was only because he had been acquitted in the heavenly court and he was given permission, not only permission, but encouragement to share these secrets of Torah because it was deemed absolutely necessary that the survival of the Jewish people depended on it. And if he wouldn't share these heretofore hidden mysteries that were relegated to students of Kabbalah, if he wouldn't share those secrets, the outcome would be disastrous. So the survival of the Jewish people required that these things be known. So what I'm saying to you is that there, there may have been a time in history where people didn't have access to this kind of information, and they didn't need access to this kind of information. They were able to get by with their simple faith and uh, press on. But in our generation, I see this all too clearly. This type of knowledge is not a luxury anymore. If we can't explain, in this generation, if we can't explain our lives, as profoundly necessary and meaningful and godly, somehow it's just too, too hard to go on. So we don't have the luxury of withholding these secrets anymore. We have to understand that just how incredibly potent every moment of our embodiment is and what it accomplishes on a cosmic scale and how necessary it is, and how worth it it is, to the extent that we agreed to take it all on, even knowing what it entailed. And that what it ultimately is, is the ultimate closeness with Hashem. And if we'll keep pressing on, ultimately, that condition will become objectively revealed to the entire world. When Mashiach comes, the entire world, the flesh of the world, will see that the mouth of Hashem has spoken. In other words, that Hashem is speaking the world into being. That every single thing in creation is really an extension of the Creator. That Hashem and His world are one. Like the Gemara says, Avraham tried to teach people not just kel oilam, kel ha'olam, but kel oilam, not just that God is God of the world, but that 
the world is ultimately inseparable from God. It has no independent existence. Only Hashem has absolute existence. And every other existence is just an extension of His existence. And that by having an experience in this world, ultimately we're experiencing Hashem. And in fact, the greatest experience of Hashem that could ever be had is by being in this world. And maybe for now, that's something that we have to learn the holy books in order to wrap our heads around. But very soon Mashiach will come and it's going to become the absolute empirical truth. It'll be as obvious as anything that we can physically see. We have to keep pushing on. We have to keep living our lives, cherishing every moment as an opportunity for for divine intimacy. And we have to spread this message. And we have to tell other people. Every moment is an opportunity for closeness. More than that. It's not just an opportunity for closeness, but the essence of every moment of every individual's life is divine closeness. And we have to look for it. We have to know that it's there and we have to find it. He's with us. We're not alone. We were not sent away from him. We were brought closer. Even in the difficult times, especially in the difficult times. And no one has ever lived the life that you've lived. No one has ever had the exact experiences that you've had. For eternity, your soul existed and awaited this this opportunity to have this unique connection to Hashem that no soul has ever or will ever have again. So you want to know what it means to get to know the real you? This is the real you. This is the real you. The real you isn't what it says on your passport. It's not your your height, your, your color eyes. It's not your age, your place of birth. This isn't, this isn't uh, philosophy anymore. Like I said, one, once upon a time, perhaps historically, this kind of, kind of information was uh, maybe only something that uh, very deep spiritual people needed to know. Today, we can't survive without it. How do we go on without knowing this? And if I had to pick whether to live in this generation or a previous generation, it's funny because I think I would tell you I would want to live in a previous generation. It would be easier. But apparently that's not what I picked because <laughs> I'm here. 
having my embodiment during this very interesting time in history where we're so close to Mashiach, we're so close to all the truth being revealed. We're so close to all of the truth being revealed. Yeah, yeah, it should, should, should happen already, but for the last few seconds of it, let's try to flip the switch and, and see the truth about ourselves. Okay, so that explains a little bit about why we go through what we go through, but it doesn't really talk about the practical tools of how to manage. For that, I want to recommend this class about bitochen, about how to increase our trust in Hashem and increase our general sense of well-being.